We're just going to dig right into our passage in Matthew this evening. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 20. And I'm going to read our passage. It's chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to see Jesus, to hear him and listen to him. As we study this passage, would you illuminate the scriptures for us so that we can um, be changed by them, that they would be more than just words coming into our mind but that they would be your actual presence coming into our soul and our spirit as we read this together and study it together as a church family. We love you. We're here for you to lift your name up and to learn about you and grow closer to you, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. In the last few chapters of Matthew, um, going back to like chapter 15 and 16, we have seen Jesus trying to teach his disciples this exact concept that we just read about. It's been happening over and over again. We get a picture in the last few chapters of Matthew, a picture of the majesty of Jesus, and then this reminder that he's going to be killed, and then a story of the disciples wanting to be great or trying to figure out kind of where they fit in the kingdom and the hierarchy that they're trying to, to be more important. This, is hap- this has been happening over and over again. If you go back to chapters 16 through 20, there's a certain rhythm to this process. So they see the majesty of Jesus. It's seen in Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. It's this really epic moment. And then right after that, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, just so you know, yes, I'm the Messiah, but what that means is that I'm gonna be uh, put to death. And then there's the majesty of Jesus seen in the transfiguration where he, before before the disciples' very eyes, just becomes this amazing picture of the Son of God. He's glowing and it's epic and amazing. And then immediately after, there's another prediction. Here's what it means that I'm the Son of God. I'm gonna uh, be put to death in a very, very shameful way. And then in chapter 18, the disciples ask, 
who is the greatest in the kingdom? So they're getting this picture of like the Messiah is great, but what that means is that he's gonna be put to death. And then they're just playing this game where they're trying to figure out like where do, where do we rank, the 12 of us? Where do we rank in this kingdom? How important are we? Are we people in power? And Jesus tells them when they ask who's the, who's the most important, who's the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus says it's children, people who are categorically unimportant and not powerful. And then now there's this third and final prediction of his death that we just read. The Messiah will be betrayed and mocked and tortured, and murdered in the most shameful way possible, and the disciples still don't get it. And so they ask if they can be number two and number three in this new kingdom that Jesus is launching. Jesus has been trying, though, over and over again to get it into their head, uh, this idea that um, importance and power and greatness, how it works in the world is not how it works in the kingdom of God. And this is evidenced by how the king of this kingdom will live, which is by saving others by dying for them. And so now we have this final picture of this concept that Jesus has been trying to teach over and over again. The disciples seem to keep missing it over and over again. And so let's dig into it just a little bit. So let's look at verses 17 through 19. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. He will hand him over, they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. So this is his third death prediction now about what's coming when they get to Jerusalem. He warns his disciples each time with increasing detail about what's gonna happen. He's gonna be killed, and on the third day, he'll be raised. And the warnings seem random, but like we just briefly went over, I think they're strategically placed throughout the last few chapters next to these really epic moments that portray Jesus as the Messiah to make sure that we don't miss that what it means for him to be Messiah is that he's going to suffer, that he's gonna have to give his life for people. A few interesting notes really quick. The text says that Jesus pulls the disciples aside. The inference is that they're traveling now with a larger group of people some of them being women, as we can see the, uh, the sons of Zebedee's mom is with them. So there's a larger group now, they're traveling to Jerusalem together and Jesus needs to pull the disciples aside. Um, second thing, there's this phrase that's repeated twice in a row where it says they're going up to Jerusalem. Um, a lot of Bible scholars think that this is language kind of part, it's maybe seemingly a small, de small detail, but Jesus is using, or maybe Matthew is using this language to talk about Jesus' ascent to his throne, that they're going up. This language of them ascending to Jerusalem, maybe the elevation was up, but it doesn't matter. The idea is that Jesus is on his way up to his eventual throne. He's gonna go get his crown, the crown of thorns, and he's gonna be raised and throned on the cross. So there's some interesting language here that I think is kinda neat. Moving on to verses 20, 20 and 21. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So James and John are the sons of a man named Zebedee. Their mom is apparently with them now. Most scholars think that Zebedee's wife was a woman named Salome, who is the sister of Mary. Uh, therefore, she's potentially Jesus's aunt and her sons are Jesus's cousins. 
If she'd been traveling with Jesus for a while, which is likely that she would have heard him say just a few verses ago in chapter 19, there's that his disciples would sit on these 12 thrones and with Jesus, they would kind of exercise some type of authority in judging the world. So she's heard Jesus say that. She's basically like, okay, I heard you say that and I just wanna make sure that my sons get the top two spots. But it's more likely that her sons put her up to this. One Bible scholar says, they, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they have probably reasoned, we have been messing up a lot lately. Jesus has been exasperated with us, so we shouldn't ask directly. How can Jesus say no to mom? <laughs> so what they all want is to be Jesus's top two guys, assistant Messiah and assistant to the Messiah. They know Jesus is about to enter into this, some kind of kingly role, and they wanna share in that power and prestige. Verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. So basically, we've said it, the disciples do not understand. They're not really able to clearly hear what Jesus has been saying about what it means that he's the Messiah. They don't understand the suffering that Jesus is about to go through. They still think in some way that Jesus is like their ticket to greatness. They haven't understood that Jesus is about to be betrayed, rejected, and murdered in the most shameful way possible. So he's like, are, are you able to handle what I'm about to have to handle? And the, they just say, yeah, yeah, we got it. Uh, the phrase that's used here, the image of drinking from a cup is kind of this old school, Old Testament that has to do with receiving the judgment or wrath from someone. They call that a cup that you drink. Um, so Jesus is like, can you handle this drink that I'm about to drink? And they say, yeah, we got it, which is just, an ignorant kind of false bravado that is about to be proven wrong when they fall asleep in the garden and when Jesus was asking them to pray, it's gonna be proven wrong when Peter disowns Jesus three times. So they're not quite ready for what Jesus is about to go through. They don't understand what's about to happen to him. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So Jesus is likely hinting at the fact that both uh, James and John will indeed share in a similar way that Christ did in some type of suffering. James would become the first martyr and John, most scholars think, was imprisoned and exiled. And so Jesus says, you are about to share in the suffering that I'm about to um, drink as well, but then he says, he, it's not for him to grant those positions of right and left of him in the kingdom. Verse 24 and 25. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. So the other disciples get a little irritated with James and John. This word indignant is not like them being, it's not like a pious indignation where they're like, ah, oh, you idiots, how could you ask such a stupid thing? It's more that they're a little like, it's like some jealous anger. They're like, why aren't we asking Jesus that question right now? And I wish that it was us that we're gonna be number one and two. So now Jesus has all 12 of these disciples, people he has been teaching for a long time now, this lesson over and over again, all 12 of them with power and status and position and importance on their mind when it comes to the kingdom of God. So he's like, all right, guys, we gotta get together. We gotta talk about this right now and address it once and for all. So he pulls them aside and he brings to their mind the Gentiles in authority around them, which in this context certainly meant Rome. Those 
Romans who were oppressing them and who were ruling over them. Rome was a society built on that thrived on authority and the exercising of it. Jesus wasn't necessarily referring to Roman authorities abusing their power, but simply using it and reminding others of the power that they have over those beneath them. Side note, if you haven't started watching The Chosen yet, it's a fantastic show, and there's a really good picture of like what this Roman authority looks like in the life of an Israelite. Uh, side note, you should watch The Chosen, it's wonderful. Back to this. Um, that society was like a rank status, authoritarian society, a world that they were living in. The disciples were thinking along those lines and they were trying to figure out like where, where can we fit in in this new kingdom that Jesus is establishing? Where can we fit in? What rank will we have? We'd like to be number one and two behind Jesus. They had been forgetting to think the way that Jesus has been trying to get them to think since they started following him. The Bible scholar Grant Osborne says, Christ is saying the disciples are interested in authority rather than servanthood and have become just like the Gentiles they despise. Greatness in the kingdom is the polar opposite of greatness in the secular world. Jesus continues in verses 26 and 27. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become a great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. The NIV says not so with you, which maybe is a phrase that you've heard before in this context. The Greek kind of literally just says, it must not be this way among you. That's what Jesus says, to his, what he says to his disciples. It must not be this way among you. The way that it works in the world with these Gentile authorities and they're exercising their authority and pulling their weight and their power, that is not how it should be amongst his followers. This could be a theme, that word, right, that phrase, not so among you, or it must not be this way, is a phrase for what Jesus has been doing for many chapters now, is describing what life amongst Jesus' disciples should look like. But then he presents the way that it should be. So in the world that they're living in, the disciples, servants are not great. They are not important people. Great people have servants. So Jesus says to his disciples in his kingdom, if you wanna be great, you have to be a servant. Similarly, in their world, slaves are powerless. They rank last in the social order. The powerful people in that world have slaves, would not be one. But Jesus says if you want to be first in his kingdom, you have to be what's called a, a bound servant, someone bound to serve someone, a slave. And then Jesus gives an example of exactly what this looks like. When he says, if you need to be a servant, you need to be a slave, he gives them an example in its most perfect form in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is Jesus giving an example of what it means when he tells his disciples to be servants. He says he himself is the example. Now in verse 28, there are two I think really powerful Old Testament references that are worth bringing up that kind of help bring some depth to what Jesus means here. First is the use of the word son of man. Jesus has used it of himself many times in the Gospel of Matthew, so this will be a little bit of repeat, but it's important for us to remember that that phrase, son of man, is like this really rich, historic Old Testament title for Messiah. It's not just another like cryptic name for Jesus to use about himself. This is a reference to a passage in Daniel 7. 
So if you want to turn to Daniel 7, you can. Daniel is a book about the oppressed people of God in exile, written for a future version of the oppressed people of God in exile, slaves essentially. So Daniel details the first exile of Judah. Daniel is one of the first people taken away, subjected as basically a civil slave to King Nebuchadnezzar. But the book itself, like when it got put into a book form or some type of scroll and it was handed to the people of God, composed by the people of God of Israel, it was around the time where the Jews were under a different king, hundreds of years later named King Antiochus IV. He was this Greek king who ruled over God's people, the Jews, and he suppressed their worship and made it really difficult, hindered their ability to follow God. So this book of Daniel is about oppressed and enslaved Israel, written to and for another oppressed and enslaved Israel. And because of this, its messages and its stories were so important to the people of God at this time, especially now under Roman oppression. Especially the sections in Daniel that we're about to read concerning prophecies about their deliverance. And so let's read Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel has this vision of a son of man, a, a human, in, in other words, coming with the clouds. I don't know what that means. I'm imagining floating, flying in heaven towards the ancient of days, which is Old Testament speak for Yahweh, for God. He's led into his presence, which is normally a really dangerous place to be for a human to be straight in the unadulterated presence of God. But then this son of man is given authority by this ancient of days, given glory and power to rule and to reign. And it says all nations, not just Israel, but all nations worshiped him. And it says that this kingdom will never be destroyed. So I bring this up, we go back there because this title, the son of man, which Jesus has adopted for himself, was a loaded idea, like the richest, most rich, valuable words that you could think of when it comes to who Jesus could be for the Israelites. It was a title of hope for one who would be able to deliver them from oppression and from their um, being ruled by Rome. So this son of man that they knew about from Daniel and were waiting for was this royal king, given authority and glory to rule, by, given it to it by God himself. So needless to say, this son of man to the Jewish people was a great, important, and powerful figure, a ruler who should be served and worshiped. So Jesus says to his disciples, fighting over their position for power in this kingdom that was arriving, he says, guys, this is not how it works. Even I, the son of man, the Daniel chapter seven, son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So the one figure looked forward to by the people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years, who could be considered the most powerful and honorable and glorious and important person, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That word ransom in the original language refers to the payment of a price to, free, to purchase freedom for a slave. So Jesus is saying that his life 
is the ransom payment. He gave his life as a substitute for ours. So because of the way this verse is worded, that idea, most scholars think that Jesus is basically echoing another really important and epic passage in the Old Testament, which is Isaiah um, 53. So if you want to, open to Isaiah, actually 52, verse 13, and we'll read, this section, this section is a little bit longer, probably familiar, but this, I believe, is what's on Jesus' mind. The Son of Man is on his mind, and then this Isaiah 53 passage when he says what he says. So let's read it. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That's the resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I know that's a rather long passage, but I think that that section is often called the suffering servant song of Isaiah. I think that's on Jesus's mind and I think for the very early readers of this Gospel of Matthew, that's probably on their mind as well when they read Jesus say, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to give his life as a ransom for many. I think that would take them to this figure in Isaiah like the Son of Man that they had been waiting for, someone to come and rescue them, take them out of exile and redeem them. And so this beautiful passage details how the suffering of this servant of Yahweh that we read about 
His suffering is somehow on behalf of the many. In some way, his, his punishment brings peace to many. His wounds bring healing. He bears the iniquity of all. His life is an offering for sin. He bore the sins of many, we read. And so this all contributes to this concept of Jesus as our substitute. His life instead of ours. It pays the debt owed to God for our sin and it frees us from our slavery to sin. Verse 28, honestly, is one of the most beautiful pictures and maybe even holistic pictures we have of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. He is this glorious son of man, deserving of all authority and power, who came humbled to serve humanity by giving his life as a ransom for all who would believe in him. So the question for today, I have a really short section of application that I'm hoping you will kind of stew on today, maybe in the days to come. Are you James and John? Are you one of the other 10? Or are you thinking like Jesus would like his disciples? Those are our options, the categories we see in this passage. We've got James and John and their mom positioning for power and importance. Jesus is their ticket to success and importance, feeling good about their life. And then we've got the other 10 who are looking at this situation of these two guys trying to get ahead and they're frustrated and probably a little jealous. But then we've got Jesus who says, follow my example. Serve and give your life for others. So some questions to ponder now and this week. Are you striving for more power, importance, greatness, and success? Is that what your life is about? Or are you frustrated or jealous about someone else's power or importance or greatness or success? Or is your life about others? I feel like at any moment in my life, I can be a combination of all three of those things. Wishing that I was a bit more successful and important feeling skeptical or jealous of someone else's success or importance or greatness. And yeah, and some seasons where you're just trying not to think about yourself and you are trying to do as Jesus has called us and to serve others. So I just ask that you consider that question. Where do you see yourself? Where do you find yourself in this picture we see of these, this group of disciples trying to understand Jesus, trying to hear what he's teaching. Who do you identify with? Jesus has asked us not to be concerned with greatness or importance or power and has invited us to give up our self-interest and to lead lives that prioritize serving others just like he did. There's another passage in the New Testament that... Um, I would consider just the most amazing parallel to this, not in another gospel, 
but in Philippians that I think describes how this should look in our lives. So rather than me trying to kind of synthesize Matthew into some points of application that you could remember, I'd rather just read this passage in Philippians and have that be what we think about, the words that we stew on as we try to obey Jesus um, in this way. So I'm gonna read the scripture in closing. Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is Jesus' call to us, his invitation that we would strive to live lives where nothing is done out of selfish ambition or vanity, where we value others more than ourselves, where we look out for what others need, not just for what we need. This is the mindset, the way of life that Jesus lived, and he's inviting us to join him in that. And so I think we should do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize um, and feel the gravitational pull to think about ourselves, to have just this kind of myopic, focused life on just what, what do I need, what does my own family need, it's so easy to just think that way and to forget that you've called us to be like you and to think about others. So with these words of Jesus, the words from these scriptures, would they sink deep into our souls? Would you help us to become more like Jesus and give our lives, serve others following Jesus' example? We love you. It's your name we pray, amen.